people watch all the time what you're doing as a CEO. And if you can have that constancy of purpose and just the consistency to stay on strategy, to stay on your priorities and see things through, I think you get rewarded for that. I also learned that generally speaking, as leaders, we're not going to have perfect information. And when you get 60, 70, 80% right, you just got to go. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Scott Wine, CEO of multinational equipment manufacturer, CNH Industrial. During today's CEO Perspectives episode, Scott will reflect on the challenges of leading a globally dispersed business, the critical importance of technology to agriculture, and what he learned from running the executive dining room for General Colin Powell. He spoke with senior partner Celia Huber during our recent global strategy and leadership event. And now here's Celia. We've been discussing how to create value in tangible ways all morning. And I think our next speaker really brings that to life. So Scott Wine is a, a CEO and executive board member of the global agricultural and construction vehicle manufacturer, CNH Industrial. If you haven't heard of it, it is a $25 billion revenue company, but many of you may have heard of its brands. New Holland and Case are two examples. Scott was appointed the CEO in 2021, having previously been chairman and CEO of Polaris, a manufacturer of off-road vehicles, boats, and a whole bunch of other fun off-road vehicles. He grew Polaris, maybe more importantly, from a $1 billion company to an $8 billion company during his tenure. And we'll hear a little bit more about how he did that. Scott's also worked for UTC, a range of Dan and Her companies, Allied Signal, Honeywell, so kind of the who's who of industrial companies. And I will say from 89 to 96, he served as a supply officer in the US Navy. All right, so over the last couple of days, We've been chatting a little bit about your experience and you left a very successful run at Polaris to start at CNHI. Tell us a little bit about why, and I think you showed up in the middle of the pandemic. I did, I got a call from a recruiter and it played out over a long time because the first call came in March and I said, no, I'm too busy with the pandemic. Then they called back in May and I was like, well, maybe I'll learn a little bit more. And as I studied CNH, uh, industrial, I, I saw that it was a tremendous brands and a great opportunity. So I, I learned more and ultimately got sucked into the challenge of work and met a few people. And uh, here we are almost three years later. <laughs> well, that's great. So a, a challenge it really was. And one of the things you were telling me is that there was a book written in the 70s about the uh, grandfather, if you will, of CNH Industrial, um, so International Harvester, that was titled something like International Harvester, a tragedy? A corporate tragedy. A corporate I was tragedy. A, I learned over the years that spending time with customers and dealers, this is a two-step distribution model. So we sell to dealers that ultimately sell to customers. Polaris was the exact same. I call it product brands distribution. And so it's very, very similar businesses. And this summer I was with some of our Case IH dealers and um, one of them pulled me aside and he said, Scott, you've really got to read this book. It's called A Corporate Tragedy, the story of International Harvester. <laughs> And it was just really interesting, a book that was written about up through the 70s when they ultimately the demise and that's now the Navistar is what's the, the resulting company. Um, and the businesses that I run now were spun off and, and joined with, uh, with Case 
and, and New Holland. But it was scary how much that book that was written about what was happening through the 20s, 30s, and 40s is still very relevant today. I mean, they were talked about quality problems, which we still contend with sometimes, a strike that I had eight months of last year, and then just bad corporate decisions, which hopefully we won't make. Well, in fact, uh, you've had about two and a half years there. So tell, tell us what you did first and how you went about turning it around. I wouldn't call it a turnaround. It, it really just, we needed to unlock more value. And we had a, the Veco is a heavy duty truck business. It is extremely cyclical and low profitability. That is not a market I suggest you get into. Um, so we ultimately, the board approved spinning that off. So we took a year to figure out how to do it, but then we spun off as a separate entity. Uh, interestingly, their valuation as a $14.5 billion company is a little, right at $2 billion and ours didn't move when they left. But the board was supportive of reallocating capital. So I had to go over four months into the job and suggest that I wanted to spend $2 billion on a tech acquisition. I'm an industrial guy. I'd never always bought everything on an EBITDA multiple. And suddenly I'm looking at paying a three and a half, four times revenue multiple. And I thought I was going to choke. But ultimately it was uh, technology is becoming so important in agriculture. If we didn't make this move, I thought uh, we were going to ultimately be left behind and, and not be able to move. So we did a really sold a business and then turned around and, and reinvested that money in a technology business. And, and really, it's, it's given us a, a huge leg up now. Talk to us a little bit about technology and innovation and how you see it playing out, in, particularly in the agriculture sector. You know, I was really surprised coming into the industry just how much technology there is in agriculture. But knowing what we do, you plant a seed and within a centimeter, you fertilize that seed with the technology we have exactly where that seed was planted, then you spray exactly. So we can limit the number of inputs. We talked about protecting the environment. The technology allows us to do that. And when I talk to farmers, it's, it's really the game they play is productivity and yield. And so the more technology that we put in gives them the opportunity to get more yield from every acre they plant and better productivity from the equipment. And, um, you know, it's part of its um, navigation systems and part of its AI. I mean, a combine which harvests grains is got more machine learning and AI embedded in it because you're constantly assessing what needs to be adjusted. And these are things that operators used to try to guess at what they were doing. And we now let the combine do that for them autonomously. It's pretty interesting. That's great. And uh, we were also talking about technology and sustainability. Uh, and I think you uh, gave me a great story about water and water usage. And I was wondering if you might share that with the group. Well, I mean, water usage is, is an area that, that we're very focused on. But what I, what I'd rather talk about yeah. is going back to the, the conversation around sustainability is, you know, we acquired a company um, based out of England that has figured out how to capture methane. So every, every dairy farm in Europe and the U.S., I won't say the world, but everyone has a slurry pit because they have to capture the manure and then they ultimately use it as, as fertilizer. But what these guys that were previously NASA technologists figured out how to do is to basically capture the methane. They have a machine that cleans fugitive methane, and then we store it, and it's used for a generator that provides all of the electricity for the farm, and then it powers our tractor. And there's leftover energy, so they sell that back to the grid. We've got that on three farms right now in the UK, and we believe, I, I told uh, the guy that runs my agriculture business, it's the fastest path to a billion dollar business I've ever seen, so let's <laughs> see what we can do. 
That's great. Okay, so I asked you about water, but you told me a manure story, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> Do you want to tell the water story and then we'll move well, on? Well, I mean, <laughs> water is... It, it's especially if you think about where agriculture is grown, California is a great agriculture market. It's also a desert. So the way they compensate for that is with water. And I think water over time is going to become much more valuable. So we're looking at ways that through various uses of technology, we can decrease the amount of water required in farming. Yeah. And we're doing that uh, certainly to support California, but um, and, and believe it or not, Israeli startups are offering some great insight into that because you know they have they, they're in a desert as well. Yeah, that's great. And as a Californian, I appreciate that. <laughs> I'd love to switch now with your CEO hat on. Talk about strategy, some of the challenges you faced, and corporate finance. And so I thought we might just start with supply chain. Everyone's had some supply chain issues, but I understand yours were less about chips and more about things like tires. We spent uh, a large part of, of 20 and 21 building competency in chips. The, yeah. the problem that we ended up having is we don't use the latest generation of chips, which were becoming more readily available. So we had to find more on the aftermarket. And, and we found a, a good supply chain that we could create to get those. But it was really hard when that ran out to convince people to run chips that they don't make quite as much money on and they're not going to have the volume that they get from a, other industries. So yeah. um, proud of the way the team did a lot of times just re-engineering and revalidating because validation is what takes so long in product development. So we could go from using you know two chips instead of three chips, and many circumstances like that. So I think they did a really nice job working through that. You know the the tire discussion was interesting because, um, and I'm I'm good friends with the, the CEO now, but I invited him into my office at the request of my team to talk about allocation of tires. This was call it May June of of 2021, and I had all my facts about you know how we were getting uh, an allocation that wasn't even close to our needs and much less than our competitors. And he sat down in my office and he said, Scott, really looking forward to meeting you. And I'm, I'm sure you've got a, a good story to tell. But let me tell you that when the pandemic came along, you all st stuck me with $200 million of tires that you wouldn't take delivery of. And it hurt my cash flow. <laughs> and your competitors didn't do that. So now that I've got to make an allocation decision, I can't tell my team that you should get a preference. And that was a good, good lesson for me, just to remember, I mean, I, I, my time in the Navy really convinced me about the importance of integrity. And I think if, if you don't constantly focus on doing the right thing, it'll ultimately come back and, and harm you. And that was a, just a good example in the supply chain. Overall, I think we have a very global business. We have 43 plants all around the world. And I think we're finally on the backside of the supply chain issues. And so, yeah. And what do you do to monitor either the supply chain pieces or even just the commodities of the farmers that you sell to? Uh, and how do you think about the scenarios of what that's going to mean for sales the next year? You know, it's interesting. I crop prices really drive agriculture. So it, it's a bit counterintuitive, but Less rain is good for us because it drives up soft commodity prices. So when I say soft commodities, it's corn, soybean, wheat. The Ukraine war, it spiked up because, you know, we lost a lot of that export opportunity. Um, so we, we really do closely watch what's happening with soft commodity prices because that drives farm income. Farmers buy agricultural equipment predominantly to avoid paying taxes. So when they make more money, they buy a lot more equipment because they don't want to 
have a high tax bill. So that's really what drives our industry. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> well, then speaking of the farmer's finances, you guys also have a financial arm uh, that does financing for equipment. We do. When I started doing my analysis of the company, and um, I have a, a reasonably strong finance background, I saw $22 billion of debt on the books. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this business? We have a captive finance arm. And if you think about it, we finance our dealers. So they, that's the flooring cost for the equipment while it's, while it's on, their, uh, on their dealerships. And then we finance the, the purchases from customers. We're very comfortable that it's a, it's a great business for us. We make about $380 million of net income from it. So it's not only good for our customers and our dealers, it's a, it's a nice little business for us as well. That's great. So I want to just turn to leadership. Scott, we talked about leadership. You took over this business. I understand you haven't changed out most of the team. You've uh, actually been working with the team that was there. Talk to us a little bit about how you think about developing that team to do new things now with, with your vision. Yeah, no, I, I did find um, I plagiarized the heck out of a uh, HBR article from 2003, I think it was, and it was it was written about a Naval Academy grad who would run, you know, one of the or the health tech companies. And when he started, he asked about 300 people five questions: What three things do you want me to change? What three things do you want me to protect? What are you worried I might do? What do you want me to do? And what else do you want to talk about? And so when I joined Polaris, I asked a couple hundred people that, not, not the highest people in the company, but just get a, a, a spattering, if you will, all over the company to get that inputs. And when I joined CNH, I did the same thing. And I got a real good sense of where we should go and, and what we should try to do. And the most important thing, consistently said we didn't have a culture. Not that we didn't have a, we had a bad culture, that we didn't have a culture, which I thought was, was interesting. And I've quickly realized it was the most bureaucratic company I had ever seen. I mean, just it was so big and so inwardly focused, nobody ever talked about customers. And so we really spent a lot of time. And I had a boss when I uh, worked at Allied Signal a long time ago. Ralph Hernandez was his name. And he had, had a saying, it was change the people or change the people. And I kind of have used that throughout my career because it's really true. And I don't automatically come in with the thought that I'm going to change everyone out, but I mean, I'm going to change the people or change the people. And I, I've added about six and taken out about five. So, um, but, the, but the CFO and the two leaders of the business have been with me. Uh, they were there before I started and they're still there. So it's a good, it's a good mix, I think. And I worked with the leadership team, you know, cause remember the pandemic, we couldn't even get together. We finally were able to get together in, in September of that year. And, you know, we came up, I think, with um, some cultural beliefs that we figured that would demonstrate our commitment to changing the culture in a positive way. And I think uh, that everywhere I go, no matter where I go in the world now, I get asked most frequently, are, are we really going to stick with this, this culture change? Because they really, the, all, all the employees have been trained on it. They all believe in it. And they're just afraid that we're going to stop when something goes wrong. And I... Oh, assured that's them that that's not going to happen. It's interesting. Um, you know, you brought uh, your own learning from Polaris into CNH Industrial. So if you were to think about what were some of the best things you brought with you, um, what was in part of those learnings? And maybe learnings even from back when you were in the Navy. You know, one of my, I 
ran the executive dining room for General Powell. And great experience. I mean, General Powell actually signed my fitness reports. But the <laughs> biggest thing I took away from that job is I never wanted to be in the restaurant business. That's true. But when I was there, I was, again, trying to, to implement a um, consistent customer service. Because, I mean, all of my customers were admirals as in general. So you really didn't want to screw that up. So we benchmarked the Ritz-Carlton, and they were using a lot of Deming's work. And Deming talked about constancy of purpose. And you know, I realized um, at Polaris and, as, as, and now here, people watch all the time what you're doing as a CEO. And if you can have that constancy of purpose and just the consistency to, to stay on strategy, to stay on your priorities and see things through, I think you get rewarded for that. I, I learned that at Polaris. I also learned that Generally speaking, as leaders, we're not going to have perfect information. And when you get 60, 70, 80% right, you just got to go. Um, and a lot of times, I try to avoid apologizing because normally, I, if I've done something wrong, I will apologize. But I don't apologize if things change because if business hasn't changed, I'll change where we're going. Yeah. And really, I think really, if you execute quickly, no matter what happens, you can pivot if you need to, but that's a, you're still going forward. Good. So uh, we've talked about what's gone right. Anything you'd change if you had to do it over again or that you wish you could have told the new CEO, Scott Wine, when you took the job? Technology is really important. We talked about it. And engineering is really important. And I now have a new chief technology officer. And I think if I had had him earlier, it could have advanced where, where you think about modularity, you're just using similar components across many, I mean, I think we've got well over a hundred different varieties of equipment that we sell. You know, had I made that move sooner, I think we could have been further along mm -hmm. in some of our journey, but uh, overall I'm pleased with what the team's done. At this point, Celia invited questions from the audience. The first one was about Scott's experience moving from Polaris to a company that was more than three times its size and how he evolved his leadership to this much larger organization. You know, I, I've made a career out of convincing people that leadership's a transferable skill set. From being on a guided missile frigate to the chairman's dining room to running factories to running businesses, it really is the same. And, you know, the big change from Polaris to CNH was just the global complexity. At Polaris, I had the benefit of going into the office every day and my entire leadership team was there or at a business that was maybe 10 miles away, but we were essentially could, could be together regularly. In this job, my CFO is in Torino. Uh, the head of my agriculture business is in Basildon in England. The head of my construction business is in Switzerland. And I've got different regional leaders running very big businesses around the world that I don't get to see, but a few times a year. So it's been just adjusting on, you know, I, I've always just wanted to go barge in people's offices um, and have a conversation because I think those spontaneous, you know, when, when in the Zoom Teams environment, I said it's fine for execution, but we don't iterate very well. And I think that iteration of ideas is what I think we've had, we've struggled to figure out when we're not together, how do we make sure that we're iterating ideas and making it better? But because the businesses were similar, um, products, brand, and distribution, that part was easy. It was just adjusting to the global scale was the hardest part. Another audience member asked Scott about his vision for CNH and how he's been thinking about his potential legacy there. You know, we are, when I started at Polaris, we were number three in the, the global power sports market. And when I left, we were number one. You know, coming into CNH, 
My first meeting was with the chairman of Exor. He had come over to Detroit. This is February, March of 2021. And he invited me to meet him in Detroit for dinner. So I flew over. I was excited to meet him for the first time. And he said to me, "Um, Scott, I was thinking about our meeting. And I've got to tell you, I think you've inherited the curse of mediocrity. He said every other business, you know, they own Ferrari, they own um, Fiat. He goes, every other business we've had has either been in bankruptcy or really close to bankruptcy. So people know what it takes to fight. You know, you guys are in number two in a global ag market. You make a lot of money because I think you've got a lot of complacency here. And that I shared that with my leadership team. And oh my gosh, you would have thought I had just become the devil. I mean, they were so livid with me for sharing that feedback because in their minds, there was a very good reason that things had happened the way they were and it wasn't their fault. So I, I think for me, the vision of where I think we should be is the leaders of our industry. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say that when we're sitting at, you know, $17 billion in market cap and some of our competitors are well over a hundred. But I like to say we haven't been a worthy competitor and I can assure you we will be a worthy competitor. Maybe Scott, just if I could interject a question, you still have XOR as the major shareholder. So what's, what's your board governance like now and how are you interacting with them? The board's board's actually really strong. It was actually more difficult than I went from being chairman and CEO. And it's interesting. I had aspired to be a CEO. I really kind of thought I'd run a little $100 million company, be perfectly happy. But when I became chairman and CEO, it was, I still treated my independent lead director with a lot of deference. Um, But it was, you know, ultimately my, my call. And I went from that to being a CEO, and I didn't realize how difficult that transition was going to be. Another audience member asked if it was a challenge attracting talent to a company that was much smaller than its competitors in terms of market capitalization. For me, bringing people in was quite easy because I, sh- I, I could tell the story of the opportunity we have. Believe it or not, agriculture is a very attractive space. We get to bring in, you know, great technologists, you know, and, and people that can make an impact. And I think that is what, why people want to join is because they recognize their ability to make an impact, um, which I think is bigger here than they could get other places. A follow-up question asked Scott to comment on what role, if any, M&A played in his talent recruitment strategy, especially around technology. We were behind in tech. So, that's why I had to go to, to the board and ask permission to buy this $2 billion tech acquisition. So we, and that was as much a, a talent acquisition as it was a tech acquisition. And since that time, so it was a $2 billion acquisition and we've added another $250 million of smaller acquisitions and then hired 800 people into that group. So, I mean, we've made a really, really big push so that we can be more competitive. We're competitive now. But I believe there's an inflection point coming, and if we didn't have our, our tech stack as good as or could as it should be, we could have gotten left behind. So that's why we made those investments in both people and um, technology. Scott, my last question may be a good closing one is you have a lot of energy. Like you could even tell in our conversations. So what do you do uh, to keep that energy up? Especially, I suspect you deal with a lot of different time zones in your given week. So what, what's sort of your renewal? Well, first of all, I won't use the word I normally use, but 
being in the Navy for the seven years, the Navy loves to screw with your sleep. I mean, it, it's, I think it's just part of their indoctrination is you just, if you're on a, a, a warship, you never get a full night's sleep. I mean, it's just for years and years, you're always either getting up in the middle of the night. And, I mean, it's just bad. So I can sleep anywhere. Um, so that's really helpful with traveling all the time. I've, I've never gotten jet lag in my life. My secretary forces, I, I require that I get an hour, an hour and a half, to go on a run wherever I get to because sunlight's the single best thing um, for you. I, I rarely miss my workouts ever um, in a day. Um, they're varied. Sometimes it's lifting, sometimes it's Yesterday I ran 100 flights of stairs in my hotel. Um, but I just do something like that. I never miss drinking 12, well not, it's worse when you say 12 cups. I drink a pot of coffee every day, black. <laughs> Um, Scott, it's been a pleasure getting to know you, and thank you so much for coming and answering our questions. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening and joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ietsr at mckinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback and encourage you to keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. There you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on Twitter or X at mckstrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.